0: So let's pray together, and uh, we'll uh, get started tonight. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into your Word this evening, and uh, pray that uh, those that are going to listen now or later online or via the podcast uh, will prepare their hearts and uh, seek you, not just be listening for some sort of entertainment, but uh, be listening for what you might have to say to them through your Word I thank you that we get the opportunity to uh, start a new book tonight, 2 Corinthians. And uh, I just pray that we will um, be ready to receive whatever it is that you want to speak to us tonight. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as I said in my prayer, we're in 2 Corinthians tonight. We actually did finish 1 Corinthians last week. I'm so fired up about that. And so if you want to get into your own copy of Scripture, you're going to turn to 2 Corinthians And chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to be using the English Standard Version here. And so my intent, it's not very many verses. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 1 because I just want you to get into the flow of the context. And uh, it's always good to understand where you are, right? So it's, I don't know, it's like traveling. You get a map. Or these days, you you know, you look something up and it's GPS on your phone. Well, you don't want to just know what street you're on. You want to know where that street is in relation to all the other streets. So I don't know about you, but here in the Metroplex, I want to know where I am in relation to a major highway, right? Or at the very least, a major street. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. There are major highways going through Scripture, and... Uh, The verses are kind of like smaller streets. And we want to know how all that fits together. And we call that context, right? Um, So for instance, earlier today, um, uh, the Wilsons are looking for a new vehicle. And I bought a Honda Pilot from um, a car dealer, a small car dealer, over off of Interstate 75 years ago. Uh, It was a used vehicle. But the guy was pretty honest. So I was trying to figure out who that was. I couldn't remember the name of that dealer. And so what I had to do was I had, I knew it was off of 75. And so, you know, I had to like zoom out and zoom in and try to say, okay, I know, I know it wasn't uh, any further south of 635. I knew it wasn't any further north of George Bush, right? Right. So that narrowed it down. That got me to that, that block, and I know it was east to west. I know it was on the east side of 75. So I zoomed into that, and I did a search there, and I was looking for all those dealerships. So this is kind of like the Word of God. You need to know where you are, and how that fits into the overall context. Um, the big context, we would call the canonical context, right? That is, as it fits into Scripture as a whole, Old Testament and New Testament, the whole thing, right? Then once you're in the New Testament, it's like, okay, well, where does this fit into God's revelation to us through Christ in the New Testament? And then you zoom in even further, and you say, okay, so this is one of Paul's letters. So where does this fit into what Paul said and did? Now, um, we want to know what God is saying to us but that's not like some sort of magic, all right? If we're going to get it right, we need to understand what it meant to them so that we can properly interpret what it means to us. So I may have a sense, call it a sense, right? Uh, You know, some sort of, I don't know, confidence or conviction from the Holy Spirit that this verse is speaking to me in a certain way. But if I want to know that I'm not misinterpreting it, I need to have some idea of how it fits into this context idea. So that's what people like me are here for, and that's what studies like this. Otherwise, you could just sit at home and read your Bible, right? Um, You wouldn't have to tune in online. You could just say, well, I'm just going to read my Bible. I don't need that preacher to tell me anything. Well, this preacher went to school, and he studied all these things, and I'm trying to give you that context because I do have a strong belief in what Baptists call the priesthood of the believer. Baptists are not exclusive to that term, but that's a very strong doctrine among Baptists. It's one of the things that although we are a non-denominational church, it keeps me leaning toward Baptist theology, because I believe that God has given each of us the Holy Spirit, and because of that, he's given us the capability to properly interpret the word. But the capability the capability doesn't mean that you are taking advantage of that capability. So you can have someone that is um, uh, athletically gifted, right? There are people that, I don't know, I, I've taught karate for years. And there are kids that come in there, and they just pick up on what you're teaching them. And you could Zoom them, right? If they decided, because we make a memorized scripture, it's not just about learning moves, it's about character development. So they have to step outside of learning these certain moves, how to punch, how to kick, how to block, and so forth. And they have to memorize these scriptures and other uh, things as well, Japanese terms. Um, But the, the character development part is necessary. But back to my original point, people that are athletically capable, they're easy to teach because they just, they see what you're doing and they can emulate it, right? Um, Assuming you know how they learn, uh, athletically gifted people are typically capable of learning um, visually. So if you uh, have been exposed to uh, uh, the theory regarding learning, you would understand that there are three, what are known as modalities, And you will default to one of these three. You may not know this, but if you think about it after I say this, you'll understand, okay? There is um, an auditory learner, right? They're going to learn by listening. Those are people that do really well in church because we do a lot of talking in church, right? You patiently sit there and listen to me talk. There's no visual right now. I'm just talking. So if you're an auditory learner, this is easy for you. People that are not auditory learners, they're nodding off. They're gone. So (laughs) a little Asher on Sunday morning. Pastor Craig called him up here and involved him and everything like that. By the time I came over here, he was asleep under that pew. (laughs) (laughs) My man was under the pew sleeping, Uh right? So apparently not an auditory learner. Um, Now, this doesn't mean that you'll... You'll learn the same way throughout your entire life, okay? Um, But you probably default to one of these. So then there are visual learners. They can see it, and then, oh, okay, I get it. So let's go back to the athletic example. Um, I can say, okay, this is what you need to do. A snap punch involves this, and, uh, you know, uh, so there are three different zones on your body when you teach karate, and in uh, Japanese... The upper zone above your shoulders is called Jodan. Between your shoulders and your, uh, your waist is called Chudan. And your waist down is called um, Gedan. Now, that just might have sounded like I was, to you, like I'm saying, <speaking> right? Or you might have gone, oh, cool. Yeah, I get that. Uh, yeah, it's upper, middle, and down. And you might even remember the terms, right? So, uh, but a visual learner, is going to see that, right? And they're gonna learn that way. And then there's a kinesthetic learner. That's somebody, the only way they're gonna learn is by doing. So I told Craig, not that he wouldn't already know this because he was at karate last night. um, I was, uh, what was I teaching? I was teaching the, we call them upper bodies, right? They're they're punching and blocking techniques. And uh, so, Instead of teaching the very, very basic ones, I was moving forward and teaching some that are somewhat more complex, not terribly complex, but when you've not learned anything, they're more complex. And so I've got my I, I've got this wide range of people in the room, right? I've got, you know, teenagers in the room, I've got older kids in the room, and then I've got little kids in the room. And so my youngest kids are in Shiloh's age range. He just turned five, and then he's got. Uh, there's a young. There's a girl in our class that's about his age, and her name is Kayla. And so while we're doing this, I'm just watching them, and they're going. You know, they didn't do that, but you know, it was almost like, what? We have no idea what you're doing right now, in spite of the fact that I had repeatedly explained it and was showing it to them and turning around in different directions and all this, and they were still going. So I got down there and physically moved their little bodies, right? So I said, step, right? And move that little foot. And then I said, "Okay, now block. And I moved that little hand. Now, I've done this with people before, and it doesn't help at all unless you're a kinesthetic learner, right? Because when you're a kinesthetic learner, it's like moving and doing it. It's what is getting it in here. And you're like, oh, so after I did that with Shiloh, I got back up. He was doing it. I said, Craig, he's a kinesthetic learner, right? So, yeah, it worked. I was pleased. And it. And with the other little girl, Kayla. So I'm starting to think that maybe small sample size, of course, but I've been doing this for years, that that is really the way to teach the itty bitties. Because you can talk to them all you want and First of all, you know, they may have a decent vocabulary, but they don't have um, any sort of experience to understand what those words mean. They've heard that word before, they think they know what it means, but they wouldn't be able to tell you, okay? So you show them, but again, it's the same thing. They haven't seen enough to know, you know and they don't know their own bodies well enough to know what that looks like and how to translate that over to them. Well, okay, so this might sound like I'm talking about athletics and karate and all this. No, it's really, it's about learning, okay? And it's about scripture as well. You need to know uh, what scripture meant to the original people. You need to have this, this context, this orientation, right? Um, the more you come to Bible studies, the more you read your word, the more you have... Uh, A vocabulary, we would say. So just think about any class you ever took, right? Might have been, you know, starting in elementary school or maybe you went all the way through college or even graduate work. Um, Inevitably, if you have an intro class and you have a, you know, a textbook, you're gonna have terms, right? What do these terms mean? If I'm learning another language, I need to have the vocabulary. I can't move these words around if I don't know what the words mean. So you have, you know, at the back of every chapter, you will typically have, okay, these are the vocabulary terms. This is what you need to understand so that you can put these concepts together, right? It's kind of like building blocks. You you need to understand what the block means before you know where to put it. So have you ever done Legos? Mm -hmm. Right? They're kind of cool, right? They have different sizes of Legos, they have different shapes of Legos. So basically they, you know, they all kind of plug in together, but you can't just shove them however you want to shove them. You have to have a basic understanding of okay, this is like a, you know, a, a, you know, a four plug. I don't know what you call those little things, you know, the little plug-ins. This is a four-plug Lego. This is the standard six-plug block Lego. Okay, this is like a little round Lego that has one receptacle and one plug in it. we got to kind of understand that, right? If you're going to build anything, you see people build, like, everything out of Legos. Uh, But you've got to understand the bricks and how they fit together before you can build anything bigger. That's the Scripture. So with all that in mind... You will understand why I'm going to spend a bit of time here at the beginning of 2 Corinthians going back into the ministry of Paul. This isn't pointless history. This is to help you understand what was going on so that you can kind of put it together, right? So 1 Corinthians, uh, what did it take us, like a year to get through that? That's probable, okay? It's pretty significant. So it's it's been a while, all that to say, it's been a while since I talked about the history of that, okay, and what we're what we're dealing with. So, um, for without getting into some sort of uh, critical detail, Jesus likely was crucified and raised in about 33 A.D. Remember that our calendar starts at the birth of Christ, okay. So Jesus likely was crucified and rose around 33 AD when he was 33 years old, okay? He might have been a little older than that uh, because it says he was around 30 years old when he started his ministry, so we don't know exactly. And to be honest, they didn't have birth certificates back then. This will freak you out. If you lived in the first century, you probably wouldn't know how old you are. That's kind of cool, really, (laughs) right? They're like, I don't know how old I am. What does that even matter? They didn't celebrate birthdays for the first four centuries of uh, the, the church. They didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't think it mattered. No, they knew Jesus was born. Okay, but nobody said, cel- the only people that celebrated birthdays were emperors. Nobody said, cel- so I've got people now, they're like, it's my birthday month. <laughs> So, what are we supposed to do give you a present for every day of the month right (laughs) we're like all about that you know but back then they were like no that's you know uh that's immodest that's arrogant we don't do that so but nonetheless i'm saying that um it is likely that jesus was crucified and rose again as early as 29 or 30 a.d and you say, well, wait a minute, I thought it was the calendar started when he was born. Well, this was started by a, a monk who was also a scholar who thought he knew when Jesus was born, right? So he wasn't an expert. So he may have, and likely did, slightly misinterpreted. All that to say, Jesus was, in all likelihood, Um, crucified and rose in 33 AD. So that'll give you an idea. Okay. so Jesus is born right at the timeline when we hit zero from BC to AD. Now they don't say BC and AD anymore, right? Because we all have to be PC, so we don't say BC and AD anymore. So now, they say BCE. Before the common era. No, it's before Christ. And they don't say AD anymore. They say CE, common era. No, it's AD. What does AD stand for? Anno Domini, year of our Lord. That's when the calendar starts over. All that to say, Jesus um, likely was crucified and arose in somewhere in the vicinity of 33 AD. Okay? So now um, we have 22 years later, and 1 Corinthians is written. 55 A.D. Could have been as late as 57, but probably somewhere around 55. The Apostle Paul likely became a Christian somewhere around 35, okay? Um, probably two or three years after Jesus was uh, resurrected. And uh, by the time he's on the second missionary journey, which is when he started the Corinthian church, um, he goes to, well, actually, this is written on when he, uh, he starts the Corinthian church on the second missionary journey, but he writes to the Corinthian church on his third missionary journey when he's in Ephesus, right? So he's in Asia Minor. I gave you that whole mock-up of the, of the map over here last week, okay? Corinth is, uh, is down here in Achaia, what we would consider Greece today. And then across the Aegean Sea over here is Asia Minor on this, you know, the Asian continent essentially, and Ephesus is out here toward the coast there, okay? So Paul is over here, and he sends this letter over to the Corinthians over there, probably somewhere in the vicinity of 55 A.D., Um We say 1 Corinthians because it is the first letter to the Corinthians that we possess. But if you read 1 Corinthians, you see that Paul actually wrote them a letter before that. We don't have it. Providentially, the Lord has not preserved it. But let me just make it real confusing for you. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. (laughs) And then he wrote another letter after... First Corinthians, which is actually Second Corinthians, which would be Third Corinthians, but we don't have that one either. I got it. And then he wrote the letter that we're getting into tonight, which is Second Corinthians, but that's actually Fourth Corinthians. Mm -hmm. So, First (laughs) Corinthians is actually Second Corinthians, and Second Corinthians is actually Fourth Corinthians. What would happen if we recovered those letters? I mean, we'd go out of our minds, right? Um, He speaks of visits that he made to them. Uh, He speaks of a painful visit that he made to them because he's constantly, this is why I've called this study God's dysfunctional people, because they just have so many problems, right? It's like dealing with the church today. There's just so many issues. So there's a painful visit. That might have been somewhere in the summer or fall of A.D. 55. Then he wrote a severe letter to them. This would be Third Corinthians, right? This is the third letter he wrote to them after our 1 Corinthians, okay? And then he left Ephesus in 56. He's in Macedonia, so he left Ephesus, and then he comes up. So here's our map again. Here's the Aegean Sea. Here's Asia Minor over here. You go up and around and over and down. Way down here is what we think of Greece today. That's Achaia, and up here is Macedonia, That would also be in the Grecian region. That's where Thessalonica, where uh, Philippi is. And he told them, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians, that he was going to go through Macedonia and then go down to them in Achaia down here. So that's what he did. He left Ephesus in the spring of 56, probably. He's in Macedonia in the summer of 56. Um, He speaks of Titus, uh, one of his companions, who arrives in Macedonia in the summer of 56. And then 2 Corinthians may have been written around the fall of 56. So that's 23 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So that kind of... I'm trying to locate you geographically, right? Where's Paul during all of this? Where's he writing this from? And I'm trying to locate you chronologically. All right. So now with that in mind... We're going to read chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and Which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now remember, Ephesus is in Asia, that's where he's been for two years. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So we had a rough time, those waning days in Asia. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. For we are not writing to you, uh, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you re- read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. So he's saying there's no subtext here, right? Um, what you see is what you get, just as you did partially understand us. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I uh, I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him it is always yes for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen. Remember amen means so be it. It means truth. It's related to the Hebrew word for truth. It is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us. And given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So apparently, he's writing this letter in lieu of coming directly to them. He, and we'll see later in the letter, he's kind of wanting to prepare them before he shows up. Okay? So, let's look at the, uh, the first two verses there. It says he's an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, and then he includes Timothy, our brother, in the introduction. He didn't do that in 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians, he included a member of their community, right? Uh, Sosthenes. And then he gives the typical uh, introduction so, I don't know. Do you write letters anymore? You just write emails and texts, right? So, you know, typically when we write a letter, we say, dear so-and-so. That's, what, that's the, you know, extent of our introduction. Dear so-and-so. And then we, you know, jump into it. But they had this more uh, lengthy introduction, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome. He's wishing grace and peace to everyone. So in the first Corinthian letter, as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, Paul added Sosthenes to the salutation. This could have been, and I think was, uh, the same Sosthenes who was the synagogue leader after Crispus was converted to Christianity. So if you look at Acts 18 and you see how the Corinthian church was started, Crispus was the synagogue leader, and he immediately started following Jesus. Well, the synagogue didn't turn to Jesus as a whole, so Paul ended up taking the followers, the disciples of Jesus, and going elsewhere to teach and to preach. Well, apparently, Crispus went with them, and he was summarily, presumably, dismissed as the synagogue leader. Well, the next synagogue leader was a man named Sosthenes, who is included in the introduction to 1 Corinthians. Um, when we look at Acts chapter 18, the Jewish leaders tried to bring a legal case against Paul for teaching people to worship unapproved gods. The proconsul at that time, a new proconsul in um, Corinth named Gallio, refused to hear the case. And at this point, people began to beat so- Sosthenes. Um, we're not sure if that's Jews, Gentiles or a combination of the two. And Galilee, (laughs) Galilee, Galileo, that was his name. Galileo looked on unaffected. He just let him beat him in his presence. He's like, I don't care. I don't care what you people do. Your case is pointless, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Do what you want to do. This is kind of Roman justice. Sadly, I'm afraid American justice is getting to that place where we're not concerned about justice. It is all about agenda, right? It's about who's in power. So we have the January 6th commission, right? (laughs) And sure, they need to hold those people accountable, but apparently uh, a comedian just sent a number of his staff people uh, stealthily. You know who Stephen Colbert is, right? He sent several of his staff people, like six of his staff people, and they snuck into the Capitol the same way these January 6th people snuck in and were caught. So, but as of, you know, at this point that doesn't seem to be uh, of any concern to those who are in power currently. You see it's all a matter of who has power. This is not a matter of right or left, it's a matter of who has power, right? And so Galia was like, I'm not concerned about your Jewish, you know, names and laws and all of that. Beat them, I don't care, do what you want to do. So think about this, do you remember all the riots two years ago? right? Yep. The Black Lives Matter riots? I'm wondering, where are the commissions on those? I mean, Portland, Oregon was on fire for, what, six or eight months? Nobody cares. Nobody cares because of the people who were in power, okay? Uh, the January 6th, well, there's, there's no point, except now we have people in power who want to keep the other side out of power? You see what I'm saying? That's not justice. I'm all about. Listen, hold Trump accountable. It appears that that he was egging a lot of that on. Maybe that'll make some people mad, but it really does appear that way. Um, and he really did believe that he was robbed of the you know of the election. He believed that. But I wonder. Do you remember for virtually the entirety of uh uh. Uh, Trump's uh, time in office, there was the Russia collusion hoax. Right? This investigation that cost millions and millions of dollars. And if you watch CNN at all, that's all they ever talked about. They didn't report the news. It was constantly that the Russians were the ones that put Trump in office and he wasn't legally in office. As it turns out, he was legally in office. And... They had to throw up their, you know, the last six months. And so, you know, they had to figure out some other. Listen, I'm not a Trump advocate. I'm just trying to show you that whoever's in power pushes their, (laughs) they impeached Trump twice. Uh Didn't work out because the Senate didn't go along. But what's, are you following me? So now we don't go along with the result of an election Mm -hmm. you know, whoever it is that doesn't get their way, they're like toddlers. Have you ever babysat toddlers? Sure. Yeah. What happens when they don't get their way? That's our whole country. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that's, you know, Sosthenes is like, throw a fit, I don't care, beat them, I don't care, you know, so Rome didn't care about any of this, and Gallio represented Rome, and they thought they could get Rome behind them, and they could not do that, right? Now, in 2 Corinthians, we have Timothy listed in the salutation, not Sosthenes. Um, and that's common in Paul's letters. Uh, Timothy's name is included in the salutations of this letter, 2 Corinthians, of Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, Philemon. Wow. Now, Timothy was Paul's protege. He was rather young. Um, he was the young man that Paul picked up uh, on the way uh, to, through his second missionary journey, and Timothy was essentially the replacement of John Mark, who Paul refused to take with he and Barnabas on the second missionary journey, and it was a cause for he and Barnabas to split Barnabas ended up uh, going back toward Crete, where he was from, and bringing John Mark with him, and Paul went on the second missionary journey overland, back up and in toward the Galatian region, the broader Galatian region, and when he reached uh, Lystra, he encountered this fellow named Timothy, a young man, very similar to Mark in age, probably. Um, whose mother and grandmother were Christians, were believers, and whose father, it, we just hear, was a Greek, which means he was just uh, you know, part of the culture of the time, the secular culture of the time, which meant that Timothy was not circumcised. Um, so Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, And so he circumcised him because he didn't want Timothy to be a cause of stumbling for the Jews that Paul would try to reach, although Paul consistently said uh, circumcision is not necessary for someone to be a Christian, for a uh, male to be a Christian. But Paul was all about not giving offense, because if you have this immediate block, you can't get through it to preach the gospel. Oh, he's not circumcised. We're not listening to him. No. He is. Get over yourself now. Can we move forward? So that's, uh, that's what he did. Timothy's mother, Eunice, was Jewish, and his father was a Greek, and this made him an ideal candidate to represent the gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles, which the Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. His grandmother, Lois, that is, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, was also a convert. So Paul had already sent Timothy to Corinth. We find that in 1 Corinthians 16.10. And he had instructed the Corinthians to, quote, put him at ease and to, quote, let no one despise him. Apparently, Timothy was a more reserved person. He was, um, you know, we have extroverts and introverts, right? I mentioned this last week when we talked about this. And Timothy was apparently more of an introverted sort, more of a timid sort in the natural and perhaps he was even fearful. Once again, uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love and power and a sound mind, or love and power and discipline. And that's Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. Timothy was still quite young, 1 Timothy 4.12. Nonetheless, Paul had complete confidence in him, um, He saw that Timothy was someone who would have the right character and represent Paul and have the right doctrine and wouldn't get off track. He would keep reinforcing what the Apostle Paul had taught them. Paul's apostolic ministry was not self-proclaimed. He says, I am an apostle by the will of God. Okay. First of all, let's go through this. He was not a self-proclaimed prophet. He didn't want the job. He didn't even believe in Jesus. Remember, when we first meet Paul, he's holding the coats of those that are stoning the first martyr to death, Stephen, right? And then he gets letters of commission from the Sanhedrin so that he can go and haul these um, apostate, as he considered it, Christians, uh, back to Jerusalem so that they could be prosecuted and imprisoned or killed one way or the other, okay? Okay. But the Lord strikes him to the ground with a bright light on his road to Damascus with those very letters, and Jesus speaks to him and says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's pretty authentic. Jesus himself, right, with a bright light and an audible voice called Paul. Um, that account is given three times in Acts. The first time it's given in Acts chapter 9, but it's given two other times in Acts uh, in the 20s, the latter part of Acts. Secondly, the first Gentile church located in Antioch um, recognized him as an apostle. In that church, there were prophets, and they were fasting, And they were told to set aside Barnabas and and Saul. That was his name at the time, Saul. His name was changed to Paul on the first missionary journey, in fact, while he was in Crete. And uh, this is what uh, it says. This is Acts 13, 2. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this is validated and verified by a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, the Holy Spirit's anointing, authority, and power were obvious in Paul. When Paul spoke, it was not with mere words, conveying his own thoughts and teaching, but with the Holy Spirit's power. He spoke and wrote the Word of God. The majority of the books, as we would call them in the New Testament, are written by who? Paul. Paul. This is the Word of God. And Paul is the one who is used as God's instrument to write. Um, He said, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, and this has been a long time ago since we read this, but 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. People today talk, 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 talk. Right? Lots of words, lots of emotions. Where's the power? When the Apostle Paul spoke, there was power, okay? So, his original calling, the first Gentile church in Antioch recognized him, the obvious anointing from the Holy Spirit in his words as he spoke, and then revelations from the Lord. We're going to get to this, but it'll be a while. In chapter 12, um, he says, speaking of himself, this man was caught up into paradise, and he heard things that cannot be told. So the Lord revealed himself to Paul. Now, we wouldn't be able to trust those revelations if we didn't have these other three uh, clear uh, indicators that he was an apostle. And then, number five, uh, he showed the signs of a true apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Once again, that's much further into this letter, and we're not going to get there for a while, but it says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There were Consistent miracles performed through Paul. And that was validation of his authentic authority in the Lord. So, today, there are plenty of self-proclaimed apostles and prophets and bishops. You need to be immediately on the alert of someone who has to tell you they're a prophet. I would immediately take three steps back. If someone calls themselves an apostle today, you need to back up. Honestly, if someone uses the title bishop to refer to themselves, it just sounds very exalted. You need to kind of take a step back. Now in the scripture, that term bishop is just another word for overseer, right? Um, in the church, the Apostle Paul, he would preach, people would be converted to Christ. He would start a congregation, right, a group of people, and he would appoint overseers or elders, right? Because the overseers weren't, I mean, we have uh, a, a former attendee of our church um, who was just elected mayor of Rowlett. He's 23 or 24 years old. Now, I know he loves the city, Um, He has a very interesting history with the city, uh, but he's very, very young to be in that position. Um, You would not have been considered old enough to hold an office like that in Paul's time until you turned at least 30, right? So often bishops, the, the governors of the church, the mayor and, you know, so forth of the church, would be overseers who were also elders. They were older. They were recognized. They, they had uh, experience behind them, okay? Um, today, there are people that just use that term bishop as a way of making themselves seem more exalted. Even the term pastor, that's just, it's just thrown out there today. Really? Anybody can be a pastor if they just call themselves a pastor. No, not really. The Lord has to call you to that, right? Um, I did youth ministry for years, but I was a youth minister or youth pastor for years before the Lord called me to be a pastor. So a pastor is not something I do, it's something I am. It's what I've been called to do. I've been doing it in this church since 1999, so that's 23 years. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, uh, somebody just decide. well, I think God's called me to start a church. And they just go out there and throw up a sign and tell people to come meet and call themselves a pastor. That's not the way it works. It's really not. You need to avoid people who are simply charismatic, right? They've just got a very winsome personality. Maybe they, they look really good. Maybe they're funny, right? People love a comedian. Oh, man, if I made you laugh more, we'd have the room that was just full of people. Now, I posted this on my blog that nobody reads, but... um, (laughs) it's. uh, If you ever want to read my blog, I don't write a whole lot on there anymore, but it's at deorl.com. Think about my license plate, D-E-O-R-L. It's the Anglo-Saxon origin of my first name, Daryl, D-E-O-R-L.com. You just click that and you can read it. But if you, if you want to hear what I'm about to uh, go over or here, if you want to read what I'm about to go over so that you can reinforce it, uh, you can go there because I went ahead and posted that for you guys. So before you listen to or follow someone, before you listen to a a teacher or a preacher on the radio or online or on television, I want you to ask yourself the following question. One, is this person connected to the larger community of believers, or are they doing things on their own? Now, they may have a big ministry, but if they're not connected to the larger community of believers, you need to avoid them because there's no accountability there. Number two, does their teaching agree with historic Christian doctrine? what we would call the Nicene faith. Are they reinventing Jesus? Are they uh, holding to the Bible as God's word? Do they believe that uh, Jesus is God's one and only son who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, um, who ascended to the right hand of God the Father? Are they being innovated or novel in their teaching to tickle people's itching ears, right? Number three, what is their theology? Do they teach the Bible or their own ideas? I mean, are, when you go to that church, when you listen to that teacher or that preacher, are they teaching the Bible or are they giving you tips on how to raise your kids? Listen, okay, that's nice, that's good, but that's really not a preacher's job. You, you do realize that, right? I'm going to teach the Word of God and I'm going to attempt to apply that to you, right? And we're going to have, that's why I let uh, Pastor Craig Uh, I didn't let him. I had to really urge him strongly (laughs) to preach the Father's Day message uh, last Sunday, because he's the one with kids, right? And the previous movie night when we were all here, he was uh, regaling uh, another fellow and I out in the lobby with a variety of anecdotes uh, from his family situation with his kids. And I was like, Craig, I said, you need to preach the Father's Day message, right? You really, really do. So I'm not saying you don't need to have, you know, tips about how to raise your, but it's like people just want, you know, we had, I, I had a couple here for a while and they were like, well, why aren't you teaching on, you know, how to have a better marriage? Well, I teach on all sorts of things, but it has to come out of the scripture. I'm not just going to go, well, here you go. Here's five tips on having a better marriage, although I'm not married and I don't know this personally. Well, they left. But, you know, that's going to happen. You know, listen, I'm sorry. If you need somebody that looks like you, then you're going to go to a church where whoever that is kind of looks and feels like you or like you want to be. And, you know, if you just need your your beliefs reinforced rather than challenged, then you're going to go somewhere where they tell you what you already think you know. And, you know, that's not the word of God. The word of God's going to challenge you on a regular basis, right? So, what is their theology? Are they teaching their own ideas, tips on various aspects of daily life, psychological insights? Oh, politics. Yeah, that's churches today. You got the woke church all over the place today. We're just going to reinforce the, you know, the latest cultural norms. No, that's not the church, friend. It's not. Number four, do they confess that Jesus Christ is who the New Testament clearly teaches He is? That he is the unique Son of the one and only God, that he is Lord, meaning he is one with God, one with the Father, that he is God come in the flesh. This is what the scripture says in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ has come in the f- that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So this might be somebody that denies that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus came in the flesh, or it might be somebody that just ignores or avoids the topic altogether. If you go to a church and it's supposed to be a Christian church and they don't ever preach on Jesus, how are they a Christian church? Really? That's nonsense, right? Do they confess that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? You might say, well, God, duh, right? Hey. Muslims don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. There are those that, as we discussed or discovered, depending on where you are, when we went through the resurrection chapter several weeks back, 1 Corinthians 15, that don't believe that Jesus physically, visibly raised from the dead. Oh, it's just a spiritual thing. What do you think that means? It means it's a metaphor, you know? And there are those that are out there that are like that, right? Uh, There's a guy that is... uh, He's seeking the permanent, uh, a a six-year term in Georgia uh, as a senator. He's currently a senator, but he took someone else's place. But his name is Raphael Warnock. This guy doesn't believe in the visible, physical resurrection of Jesus, but he's supposed to be a minister. So, by the way, Herschel Walker is running against him. We need to pray Herschel wins. Number five, Jesus is God's chosen one, the Christ, that is, the Messiah. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So if you're listening to some, uh, you know, Yahoo that says that, well, Jesus wasn't really Messiah, he just was deluded, he just thought he was, or they just turned him into that, that's not the truth, right? Um, uh, In 1 John, John says, This is the Antichrist, that is, the person that denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Number six, question you need to be asking yourself before you listen to a quote-unquote religious spiritual teacher. Do they teach that they represent the quote-unquote true church? Well, all those other churches are false. We're the true. Hey, here at Life Church, we're the true church, we represent the Lord. I don't know what them other churches are doing, but we're the true church here, life whale. Really? Okay. That's what Mormonism did, right? So Joseph Smith reputedly, reportedly, uh, asked this angel that visited him, I think the angel's name was like Moroni, you know, well, which church should I go to? And he said, go to none of them. They're all apostate. He's like 14 at the time, so he starts his own church. Now the Mormon Church wants to be part of the Christian Church. They're not, okay? These are not. I'm not telling you these are evil people, and um, but their theology is really further away from the church, from the truth than Muslims. Mormons are polytheists. They say, "Whoa, what does that mean?" They believe in many gods, right? There's the God of our planet, but they believe that there are gods of many planets, right? Well, Jesus may be the son of our God, but there are gods of many planets. Whoa, it gets even more interesting. We get into the lie of Satan. Mormons teach that you can become a god of a planet. Wow. Wow. One significant Mormon teacher believed that Adam, the first man, is actually our God. He ascended to the position. Are you following what I'm saying here? We want to be nice to everybody. 2012, I got into all sorts of hot water because uh, Mitt Romney was running for president and everybody thought that I should just be running around following Mitt Romney. I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, they're like, well, you're not going to vote for Obama before I would vote for Mitt Romney. I will. Right. Okay. Um, Do they have peers who recognize them as a leader or are they self-proclaimed? That's number seven. These are all questions you should be asking yourself. Is the title they use appropriate? Did it originate from themselves or was it earned from or applied by a recognized group or entity? Again, You can't just call yourself pastor, and that means that it's so, or bishop, or apostle, or prophet, okay? Um, Number nine, do they cooperate with and or contribute to other ministries, right? So this is, you know, if they're out there on their own, there are TV ministries out there, very, very, um, I won't say, uh, we'll say famous, perhaps infamous TV ministries out there, And they're there just to promote themselves. They don't seem to cooperate with anybody else. Number 10, do they seek to steal members from other churches? So if they disparage other churches in an effort to steal their members, we call that sheep stealing. That's what we call it. Do they incite rebellion and division in other churches as a ploy to gain some of their members? So I'm, I might sound like I'm picking on Mormons tonight, and that wasn't my intention, but a tactic of Mormons, at least in former days, was for their missionaries, these young men, um, you know, riding bikes, wearing ties, telling lies, you know, those guys. <laughs> They're the nicest guys in the world. They really are. They'll never tell you their real name, though. They're elder so-and-so, and they can't tell you where they live right? I used to sell them suits. I used to work for uh, a men's clothing store back in the day, and uh, so Mesa, Arizona is the the largest community of Mormons outside of Utah, and Mesa is, Mesa is a suburb of Phoenix, as Garland is a suburb of Dallas, and they're about the same size, actually. In fact, they're both east of their respective cities, and you know, we're east of Dallas, and Mesa is east of Phoenix. But in any event, Um, These guys would come in and, you know, to to this day, they wear white shirts and they wear ties and, you know, that's pretty much it. Ride their bikes and tell lies. Um, But one of the tactics is to infiltrate small groups in churches and to win people over. So we had a couple of Mormon missionaries that wanted to attend our youth group when I was in the colony. And the idea is that you know you just, think, well, gosh, they're cool, they're nice. And so if you ever had somebody who absolutely knows you're a member of a church and you are, you know, consistent, invite you to come to their church. Now I'm not talking about invite you to come for a special concert or for a baptism or something. Here's my question: why? I invite people to come to this church all the time, but I always tell them if you don't have a church that you're consistently a part of, right? Or now I add if you don't have a Bible teaching or Bible preaching church that you're consistently a part of. So somebody's attending a church that, you know, is, you know, woke church, they're not preaching the gospel anymore or whatever then I will encourage them to come because I want them. But usually these days, because I'm online, I just encourage them. They don't even have to leave their church. Just check us out. Go online. Watch, listen, let the Lord speak to you. But my question is, why are they inviting you to come to their church? It's sheep stealing is what it is. It's like, well, we're the only true church. Well, where are you getting that? I'm wondering what your preacher is preaching because I don't want people from other churches coming here if they're a part of their church. I'm not going to tell them they're not welcome, but I, to be honest with you, I'm not going to you know, go out of my way to chase them down. So <laughs> we have another church that meets here on Sunday nights. In fact, they were supposed to meet this last Sunday night. They weren't here um, because uh, the pastor and his wife both turned, out po- turned up positive for COVID, so you can be praying for them. But I don't come on Sunday night and say, yeah, I'm the pastor of this church right here that meets in this building. If you want to come to God's real church, you should come on Sunday morning and meet with us. What in the world? No, I want their churches to thrive and succeed. Right? I want them to have their church. I'm letting them use this building because I know how hard it was uh, when we got started. All right. Um, do does this person that you're listening to, this preacher, this teacher, whatever, do they discount or disrespect other ministers? Listen, there are plenty of ministers out there that I disagree with and that I can point out uh, apostasy even with, but you will very rarely hear me disparaging another preacher or minister. Very rarely unless there's something that's just really obvious. The Raphael Warnock thing is an example, okay? But there are churches all over here in downtown Garland, um, and they're not preaching the gospel. But you don't hear me naming them, do you? You don't hear me naming their ministers, do you? You don't hear me denigrating them, do you? Because it's wrong. That's why. I think that our current president may be, likely is, the worst president in my lifetime. But you don't hear me degrading him, disrespecting him. What I need to do is I need to talk about policy. When it comes to churches, I need to talk about theology. I need to talk about doctrine. It's not a matter of putting somebody down, right, so that See, there's this idea that if I put someone else down, I'm lifting myself up. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you have to put someone else down to demonstrate that you're better, you've just proven that you're actually worse, right? Now, I have 30-some of these. I'm just going to go through a few more because we're really done. Are they accountable to a denomination or a recognized Christian organization beyond themselves and what they have privately and personally established? Were they active in a gospel-teaching, Bible-believing church prior to stepping out as a leader? If so, did that church recognize their calling? That's what happened with the Apostle Paul and with Barnabas. They were part of the Antioch Church, and the Antioch Church recognized that God had called them to be apostles. What is the fruit of their ministry? Do people who listen to them really follow Jesus, or do they follow that person, that woman or that man? Is their ministry focused on Jesus, or do they focus on themselves or on you? Oh, mercy. There you see that all over the place. You get this preacher, this teacher, and all they do is talk about themselves. You know, that's something we all need to get over, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I want you to clock how often you talk about you. Me, me, me. Me, 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 me. Me, 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 me. I talk about me, 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 all the time. Me, me, me. Do you ever listen to what anybody else has to say about themselves? Do you, are you interested in anybody but yourself? Well, see if we just elevate that another level and we put you in a position of authority, now you're just getting everybody else to do what a certain previous president seemed to be very, very good at doing, getting everybody to focus on him. And if they didn't focus on him or like him, then he suddenly turned on them and hated them. Hmm, who would that be? I <laughs> All right, so I have, uh, there are 32 of these, but these are questions you need to ask yourself. And why did I go into this detail when we're supposed to be in 2 Corinthians? Because the Apostle Paul said that he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. That's who you need to pay attention to. Not, is this person perfect? but have they been called to that position of authority by the will of God? Are they a teacher? Are they a preacher? Are they a leader that is placed there by God? Okay, well, the fruit of their life and ministry is going to either verify that or invalidate that. So look at the fruit, right? So we're going to come back next time. And we're going to get into uh, more detail in 2 Corinthians. So if you'd like to read the balance of chapter 2, that's what we're going to do uh, when we come together next time. So thank you for joining us online. Thank you for being here, uh, those of you that are uh, here in the room.